Well, I hope that you are already enjoying this day. And my hope is that by the time you go to sleep tonight, you are still enjoying this day. That's, that's the way I'm, I'm hoping. All right, who's the better team? Who's the better team? We're not biased at all. Um, I, I have seen sports writers this week actually want to argue that in the overall picture, if you actually look at every single position and the complete depth chart, that the Bucks are a better team. But what no one argues is whether or not Kansas City has the best skilled players in the world. So it's going to be fun to see. It really is. Before we get to that, today we get for a few minutes to look at a scene that I would describe happens this way. It's like the greatest coach in the world, greatest coach in the history of the world, has his choice of any NFL team that he wants. And he picks the Jacksonville Jaguars or the New York Jets. One of those teams won one game this year. One of those teams won two games this year. I'm just promising you it is not as much fun to be a Jet fan today as it is to be a Chief fan. If a coach did that, we would say, what are you thinking? Why would you choose them when it seems like there are much better teams to choose from? I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. I figure that church attendance in both Kansas City and Tampa is probably pretty good today because everybody wants to be right with God before the game starts. That's, that's, I, I figure that's probably the case. If you're joining us online, we're grateful that you're here. We're going to dig into Luke chapter 6 today because that's where we've come to in this story of Luke. Luke chapter 6 verse 12, this is the way it starts. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. And check this out. He spent the night praying to God. He spent the night praying to God. It's three words in English. It's just one word in the Greek. It's the only place this word is used in the Bible. You would not use this word if we were just saying it was dark all night or to say that you slept all night. We would not use this word. This word is only used to express effort. Throughout the night, Jesus is praying. It's a struggle. That's the word. And and so why a struggle? Well, a, a part of the picture, I believe, is that Jesus is now very aware that his death, it's in sight. We're only six chapters into Luke, and we have already seen multiple times where this conflict exists between him and the the religious leaders of his day. I would remind you that started Jesus' really first official act of ministry was he rolls into Jerusalem, steps into the temple on the day, the, 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 the celebration of Passover. There were more people there than would be any other time of the year. He forms a whip. Remember the story? And he turns over some tables. And immediately he confronts the spiritual bankruptcy of the religious leaders of his day. 
in this chapter of Luke chapter 6, we're told in verse 6 that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are furious and they began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. In the other gospels of Matthew and Mark, they tell us that they want to destroy Jesus. He has done miracles to prove that he really is who he claims he is. He's God himself. He is, he is casting out demons to demonstrate his ability to, to destroy the kingdom of darkness, but they will not accept the fact that he is God in human flesh, and they are hating him to the point that they already want him dead. So, if his death is drawing near, it means that the time for him to train is drawing near. When we read the scripture story, we know now at this point in Luke 6, it is less than two years away from the cross. And so this is a big moment. And Jesus is going to spend the night wrestling with this talking to the Father because he wants to get it right. Now, I love these pictures in the Bible because it is one of those places where we see the true humanity of Jesus. Sometimes I think we, we say, you know, Jesus is the Son of God, and we go, well, he really can't relate to what our struggles are like. Yeah, he does. And this is part of the picture that we're given Right? He understands the hostility that, that is going to lead to his death. He, he feels the, 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 the tension of the limited amount of time for him to train these guys who are going to carry on the mission when he's gone. And it's so crucial that it drives him to the mountain to pray. He is man. He's fully God, but he's fully man. And this is one of those places where we see him humbling himself. He set aside the independent exercise of his attributes, and he submits himself to what God desires for him to do and what God allows him to do. Here's what all that means. Jesus approaches this situation like a human being because he's fully God, but he's also fully man. And so he's asking God what to do. And if you've ever stayed awake all night because you've got something pressing on your life, on your heart, and you just want to know what God desires, that's what this moment is like for Jesus. He knows. Verse 13. When morning came, he called his disciples, notice the word, to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. It's important for us to realize that Jesus' ministry, remember, has been going for about a year now. There are many, many, many disciples. The word disciple refers to a student or a follower. We have stories of Jesus feeding multitudes of people where we're told there are 5,000 men. That doesn't count the women and children. There are times that we see tens of thousands of people around Jesus that they would be referred to as followers. They are disciples. Sometimes they were just there for the food. 
And so they would come and they would follow for a while and then Jesus would say something truthful but difficult and they would walk away. And I think sometimes we struggle with this reality when it comes to the church today. That while it is absolutely important that Jesus followers should be welcoming like Jesus, I think sometimes we have a tendency to put too much pressure on making people feel welcome more than we put the attention on starting a relationship with Jesus. Sometimes people don't stick around because church people don't love like Jesus. And I understand that. But I'm also telling you that sometimes people don't stick around because they don't want to follow Jesus. That's what we see in the pattern of Jesus. They're just there for the food. Back to the story. Why 12? We're told in verse 13 there's 12. Well, there's some history attached to that. We're dealing with the nation of Israel who had how many tribes? 12. So all the way back to the beginning, we have this number 12. This is symbolic. Judaism in Jesus' day has turned into this system of self-righteous works and ceremonies. And these 12 men, these apostles are going to be the new leaders of the new true Israel who's going to believe the good news of Jesus. Listen to what a significant role these guys are going to play. I'm going to jump to Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul records these words. He says, consequently, you, he's talking to followers of Jesus, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. That's good news. Like you're on the team. That's what he's saying. You're in God's family. You're in God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. There's our word that we just read a few minutes ago. With Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. We we just sang that truth a few minutes ago, right? Jesus, who is the cornerstone. I've always, that that song's been at one of the the top spots for me. I, I just love that truth. There's no question in our minds, Jesus is the cornerstone from which everything else, right, comes and stands. But, but he's saying, look, there's a foundation that he's put in place, and a part of that is these apostles. The, the apostles became the ones who were the early teachers of, of the truth of God. They become the leaders in, in the spread of the good news. But there's more. Eventually, we're going to get to a place in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is going to say to these 12, I got a kingdom. I got a kingdom where I rule. But I'm also going to make you guys leaders in this kingdom. He says, you're going to eat at my table, which means think about the fellowship of that, to have a a connection with, with him. But he also says, and you're going to sit on thrones and you're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, I want you to take that in mind and I want you to listen to the words that the apostle John trying to give us a picture 
of that holy city that Jesus is preparing for us now that one day we get to step into a part of what John says. It's recorded in Revelation chapter 21, verse 12. It reads like this. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. But when you skip to verse 14, it reads like this. The wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Mm. I think he's talking about the foundations for each of the gates. Just like Jesus said that they would each rule, right, one of the tribes of Israel. I, I, it, you ever heard of the Hollywood Walk of Fame? Right, you know where they like select people and they like get their star right, put into the, into the sidewalk, right, on, on Hollywood Boulevard. Suddenly, that just doesn't sound impressive at all, does it? If your name is imprinted on the foundation of the holy city of God that will stand forever and ever and ever and ever. Just a, just a bit of info, in case you were hoping that someone would nominate you for a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, Here's a little tidbit. It'll cost you $50,000 to get your star put down. I guess people who have a star aren't worried about that. But in order for the apostles, for their names to be inscribed on the foundation of a part of what we called heaven, oh, the price that would be required would be nothing less than Jesus own blood. Apostle means sent from. That's what it means. It means to send from. So the sent ones. And the people in Jesus' day were, were accustomed to this word. Um, there was a group of 70 men who were called the Sanhedrin. You probably you heard. It. And they, they ruled the nation. Well, they would actually have representatives that they would send out from that 70 to go and do whatever it was that was needed to be done, and they would send them in the authority of the Sanhedrin. The same thing would, would sometimes happen with a, a prominent rabbi. They would have a representative that they would send with their authority. That is what we're talking about here, this word apostle, this understanding of someone who is, who is sent. It is a title of great respect, great honor, great privilege, and great authority because you are given power to go on behalf of the one who sent you. Jesus says, I've got apostles. And I want you to hear how Mark records this process. Look at what Mark says. Chapter 3, he appointed 12 that they might be with him, that's Jesus, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority and to drive out demons. I love that progression. Before they could be sent out, they had to be brought in. They had to be pulled in. And it was absolutely critical that these guys spend time with Jesus first. It will be Luke chapter 9. So we got a little ways to go. 
before Jesus is going to impart to these guys power and authority over demons and to to heal disease. Today, he's simply identifying them. He's pulling them in. They already have been called to believe in him. Now he's calling them to drop everything and follow him and he's appointing them as apostles. Eventually, he's gonna gift them miraculously. He will send them out on little short-term journeys where they will deal with the issues that he calls them to deal with and then he brings them back in so that eventually he will die, he will rise, he will ascend and he will send them out permanently. And the words that we hear echo in the scriptures, Jesus says, learn from me, learn from me. Because that's how real learning happens. It's not just information that's passed on. Real learning is about life against life. It's the greatest kind of learning environment and that's how Jesus chooses to train the 12. So who are they? Who are these 12? Luke gives us the answer, verse 14. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. As famous as the 12 disciples are, I mean, everybody's like, how many disciples? We know there's 12. It's like, can you name them all? And I think it's interesting, unless you learned the song in Bible school, you probably struggle to name all the, anybody learn the song in Bible school? Yeah, Bible school, or maybe, maybe growing up in Sunday school, church, whatever. There were 12 disciples. Jesus called to help him. Simon, Peter, Andrew, James's brother, John. Philip, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, Judas, and Bartholomew. I passed tests in seminary thanks to that song. You know what I'm saying? Because <laughs> otherwise, I couldn't name them. You, it, the good thing is you got a couple of James in there. You got a couple of Judas in there, which would stink if you're the other Judas, right? You would go through all of life going, I'm Judas, but not that Judas, right? But, but it, I, we, we would struggle to name some of them. Just an interesting fact, we got sets of brothers. We know Peter and who? Andrew. We know James and John. All right, we know, we know those are sets of brothers. I think there might be one more. Um, James, we read the son of Alphaeus. Did you know that when Mark tells the story that we studied last week of Matthew, Levi. Mark says, as Jesus walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus. Like, was that the same Alphaeus? Were, were, were both of, are they brothers? And I'm saying, I don't know, maybe. It's possible. When we get to heaven, we'll ask that question. This is what I do know. This is the main quote, I guess, summary quote for me that I thought about this week when I'm studying these 12 guys. This is the quote. It's by a man named Henry Henry Drummond. And this is what he said, ladies and gentlemen, the entrance fee into the kingdom of heaven is nothing. 
but the annual subscription is everything. Mm. The entrance fee is nothing, but the annual subscription is everything. Now, when I think about these guys, I'm going to start with nothing because that that often seems to be the picture when we deal with them. I, I think these guys brought nothing in terms of an elite standing. This is truly one of those, Jesus, why did you pick this team? Why did you pick the Jets, right? Because we've got four fishermen that we know of. We've got a tax collector that we know of. We've got a a, a money grubber that we know of, right? None of these guys are theologically trained. None of them. There's no scribes. There's no priests, there's no rabbis, there's no Pharisees, no Sadducees, none of them. We don't even know the occupations of most of them, but they are common. That's the word that would be used. They're common. There's no superstars in this group. There's no skilled players. They bring nothing in terms of an elite standing in their society. They don't. They bring nothing in terms of a spiritual understanding. Jesus doesn't cover up the weaknesses of these guys in terms of what they can't see and what they don't understand. Jesus uses people with weaknesses because that's the only kind of people there are. And so multiple times you, you will hear Jesus say to them, you just don't get it. Right, It's almost like when you're talking to your kids, you, you're not listening to me, are you? That You hear him say that. They bring nothing at times in terms of humility. They're often self-centered and they're, they're self-consumed and they're prideful. They actually have debates about who's gonna be the greatest among them. So Jesus just keeps showing them humility. They bring nothing at times in terms of faith. Multiple times, Jesus will use the line, oh, you of little faith. Like, how could they not have faith when they watch Jesus do miracle after miracle after miracle? That's a good question for us, isn't it? Sometimes they bring nothing in terms of power. With their lack of faith, there were times they struggled to harness the power that was made available to them and It's going to require that Jesus die and rise so that Pentecost could happen. The Holy Spirit would come and he would empower them to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. They really also bring nothing in terms of commitment. When the Roman soldiers arrive in the garden, these guys are gone. And remember, they followed him for at least two years now. Some of them have been tagging along for for maybe another year, but they're gone. Some of them even denying that they know who Jesus is. And yet Jesus is going to pray for them in John chapter 17 that they would be faithful and that the Father would bring them into heaven. Why would Jesus pick them? It's like, if it were us, if, we, if it were us, and we were watching somebody make such a selection, here's what many of us would do. We would go, are you sure you heard from God on the mountain? 
Are you sure when you prayed and wrestled all night with the Father, are you sure you heard him right? But I think there is a reason that is clear in Scripture. I want to read a part of that reason to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's the Apostle Paul who says these words. See if this sounds familiar. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not a whole lot of spiritual understanding, Paul's saying. Not many of you were influential. Not much elite standing going on in this group, Paul would say. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In other words, here's what Paul says. God chooses who he chooses so that in the end, there's no question who should get the glory. There's no question who could get the credit. God chooses who he chooses so that people look at those lives and go, this has got to be God because you can't explain it any other way. Four fishermen, a despised tax collector, a, 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 a money grubber, a religious terrorist. We'll talk about him in a minute. And the rest of the no-name, we don't even know. But by them, the world was changed forever. We go, how did that happen? God. Listen to this statement made in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John are standing before the religious elite rulers, teachers of the law. The high priest is even there that day. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, check out the word, ordinary, just ordinary guys, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. I love that. I love that. They had been with Jesus, and so when they were sent out, everybody knew they had been with Jesus. They brought nothing to the table. Jesus did everything necessary to bring this 12 in. Uh, 11. And not just for a few years before in eternity. One more time, I want you to hear this quote. Ladies and gentlemen, the entrance fee into the kingdom of heaven is nothing. They brought nothing in just like we bring nothing in. It is not about our achievements. It is not about our high standing. It it, it is not our intellect. It is not us. It is Jesus who does everything to bring us in. But look at this last line. But the annual subscription is everything. The annual subscription is everything. What does that mean? One day, the Bible records Jesus having a conversation with a rich man. And the rich man wants to know 
how do you have eternal life? Jesus gives him this instruction. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Now, they've already had a discussion about being good. The guy thinks he's good. Jesus said, I want you to sell it. And and it says in the story that the man was sad. And what's behind that is this heart of a man who loves what he has more than he loves Jesus. This is the place where Jesus talks about the camel going through the eye and the needle. This is the story. And right after that, we are told that Peter speaks. Shocker. Here's what Peter says in Luke chapter 18, verse 28. We have left all we had. Let me, let me translate that. Everything. Annual subscription. Everything. We left everything to follow you, Jesus. We left a career, whether it was fishermen, a tax booth. Let me tell you about one of them. His name's Simon. He's not Simon Peter. He's known as Simon the Zealot. You ever heard his story? That term zealot distinguishes him as a member of a radical, zealous, evolutionary party among the Jews. There were primarily four parties, we would say, that make up the Jews. There are the Pharisees, who are the religious fundamentalists. There are the Sadducees, who are the religious liberals. There are the Essenes who were sort of like, think of them like monks. They would often, you know, live out in the desert because they disdained the comforts of the city. And then there was a fourth group. They were the zealots. And their particular bent was political. They hated the Romans. They were political terrorists. No joke. And their history They were assassins, no joke. They believed that anybody who didn't interpret the law of God correctly and didn't live by that law should be removed. I'm not blowing that out of proportion. I'm telling you, this was their history. Therefore, when they heard the word Messiah, more than anybody, they're like, we're looking for the guy who's going to come in here and he's going to take over. The Romans are going to be pushed out. Every other pagan nation influence will be removed and Israel will be restored to its glory. They became known as the Sicarii because there's a little knife that is similar that bears that name. It's a little curved sword, if you will, that they would hide in the folds of their robe and they would sneak up on people like the Romans and they would stab them through the back in the heart and take them out. The zealots were even known to kill their own people when the Jews were perceived as compromising with the Romans, for example. You see where this is going? Jesus picked 
Simon the Zealot. And Jesus also picked Matthew the tax collector. Remember what I told you last week? Matthew, who is a Jew, but sells out his own people by being willing to work for Rome, to to take money from from his own people. I mean, not only does does he exhort taxes, but, but he betrays his people. He aids the pagan invader. I'm telling you, Simon bears the name of a zealot, which means he would have rather snuck up behind Matthew and a quick shot from the back to the heart, and it's done. I also think Simon would have been comfortable around Judas, the betrayer. Because Judas, we know, shares this this political implications of a Messiah. That's who he wants too. And so why does Judas betray Jesus, right? It's because it becomes clear to him that things aren't going the way Judas thinks they should go. He's looking for that Messiah to overthrow Rome. It's the same thing that Simon the Zealot would have been looking for. In some ways to me, Simon the Zealot would have been the one I put money on that he would have been the one to betray Jesus when it didn't go like he thought it would go because he was more passionate about that than Judas was. And so here's where I tell you that. I want you to think about what Simon the Zealot laid down. Because this this annual subscription of everything, we're talking about what has to be laid down regularly at the feet of Jesus. For, for, For Simon, that's a political view. I mean, what he's been taught and trained his whole life, his prejudices about how he sees people, right? His anger, you got to imagine there's something of that when you're, when you're dealing in, in such issues. His passion and all of that, Simon the Zealot, everything must be laid at the feet of Jesus and redirected. A passion that is redirected, a zeal that is redirected, even to the point of death. In A.D. 74, Simon the Zealot was crucified by a governor of Syria because of his faith in Jesus. I'm saying his was a life where everything was laid at the feet of the one that he followed. Some of you may know this, but the only apostle who dies a natural death, if you want to call it that, is John. And that's only because he survived the boiling cauldron of oil that they dipped him in, and he survived. They exile him to Patmos. He's the only one who dies a natural death, if that's what you want to call it. All the other apostles, their lives are given... And the scripture records how James, the son or the the brother of of John, is killed by the sword by Herod. James, the son of Alphaeus, we're told in tradition, took the gospel to modern day uh, Iran. The message was rejected and he was crucified. Andrew, 
was scourged and crucified in Greece. But the story is that Andrew stayed on a cross for two days, continuing to preach while he hung there. Thomas was stabbed with a pine spear, tortured with red-hot plates and burned alive in India. Philip tortured and crucified because on one occasion, Philip is preaching and one of the ruler's wives heard what Philip was preaching and believed in Jesus. And so the next thing you know, Philip's on a cross. Matthew was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Bartholomew was flogged or filleted to death in Armenia. Thaddeus was beaten to death with sticks in Mesopotamia. Matthias, who replaced Judas, was stoned to death and then beheaded. And Peter was crucified in Rome. But at his request, he was crucified upside down because he did not feel worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. Hmm. Hmm. All of a sudden, that statement again from Peter, verse 28, where, where he says, Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Listen to Jesus' response in verse 19. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus said nobody is going to give everything and not one day stand in an eternal perspective and be bold in proclaiming, I have been blessed a million times over. Here's the question I want you to wrestle with a little bit today. If you always get back more than you gave up, did you actually sacrifice anything at all? (laughs) Isn't it funny how we use that word sacrifice? We're always like, well, if you're following Jesus, you're gonna have to sacrifice. My question is, if you are always getting more than you gave, is that really a sacrifice? Then we go, well, yeah, it's a sacrifice because it costs you something now. You're choosing to, to give up something now in order to experience something later. And I would say in our culture, we don't call that sacrifice. We call it investment. And the wise people see it. And I would tell you that's exactly what it looks like to follow Jesus. For me, one of the greatest evidences that all of this is true is why would all the apostles be willing to die? Because come on, you might get one or two, but for all of them to be willing to give their lives for this mission How in the world does that happen? It's because they saw him die and they saw him rise and they trusted him and they loved him. To the point that an annual subscription of everything at his feet was not sacrifice. It was investment. Isn't it amazing how some of those disciples 
apostles, some of them are bold, some of them appear really strong. Others of them are quiet and almost just seek to stay out of the spotlight. That's good news for some of y'all, right? Did you know that James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Matthew, nowhere in all four gospels are any words of theirs recorded? Now, I get it. Matthew writes a gospel, but he does not record his own words in the gospel. Like he tells about how he, how he met Jesus, but they don't take any of the spotlight on their words. Isn't that wild? Just quiet, behind the scenes, changing the world. Some of them are zealous and passionate in their view of life. Others of them seem almost skeptical and analytical and kind of slow to believe. And I'm saying they all, they all, come on, this is good news for us because that covers a lot of different folks who are, who are tuning in together today. That, that, they all together were empowered to turn the world upside down. How's got to be the final question, how? And so my parting gift to you today is a few questions and a song to answer the how. I'll give you the questions. I'll let the band give you the song. That's a better deal for you, all right? So here's, here's the questions. And I, I, I encourage you, I, I encourage you, get, get a, something to write on, type on. This is the moment where I encourage you, if you haven't done anything else, get your phone, a few questions, because I want you to hear these questions And then I want us together to be able to sing this song because I think it literally allows us to stand for a few moments in the answer to the question. Here's the first question. When you hear, spend the night in prayer, (laughs) what emotion do you feel? You know, honestly, and it's good that you can type this. You don't have to say it out loud. Come on, if you hear, we gonna spend the night praying. What's the emotion that first comes to your heart. And I don't want you to feel guilty if there are some of us who would be honest enough to go, all night? Like a little bit of dread, if we can just say it. And, and I'm, I'm, the, the reality is, and this is true for me, when I'm not hungry for God, it means I'm full of me. And as great as God is, we struggle to see how great. We do. And so there's a part of us where we can't even imagine spending a night praying, right? And how that could be better than sleeping. But come on, there, there have been some people that you've met along the way. That you were at a place with your heart that you would have thoroughly enjoyed just spending all night talking with them, visiting with them, being with them. I'm saying, what if that could be true between you and Jesus? And there could be a place of your heart that you loved him that much. Which leads us to the second question. What is the thing that keeps you from following Jesus with a nothing to lose life. That's what our studies called in Luke, nothing to lose. 
Whatever that thing is that you struggle to lay at his feet, that's the, that's the everything that we're talking about today that has to be let go of, right? Where you follow him instead of him actually following you. Most people I know would say, I want Jesus close to me. We just prefer him following. But everything is to say, Jesus, you lead. I- I'm promising you that if Jesus is following you, you will soon be bored because <laughs> you and I are not that good at pulling off this life. But when you learn to follow Jesus, when you start to lay everything at his feet, those will become the greatest memories of your life. Those will be the stories you tell your children and your grandchildren. When you begin to say, Jesus, What do you want? That is what Jesus was doing on the mountain with the Father. He's saying, God, what do you want? Who do you want? Who's the 12? I want to get this right. This is so much deeper than you just doing good things. You don't have to do great things for God. Just start giving him what you have. You don't have to pull off great things for God. Just start giving him what you have. And remember, here's my third question. If you give back more, or if you get back more than you gave up, did you really sacrifice anything at all? This is not sacrifice, it is investment. Man, I loved what my dad said when he came out here to pray for you earlier. Jesus is going to run it back. I like that. He should have told me that earlier. I would have used that like all day long. Jesus is going to run it back. He came once. He's coming again. And for those of us who follow him, the only regrets on that day are going to be, how come I didn't give him everything? How come I didn't give him everything? everything. This is about an eternally deepening love for Jesus. And that's what this song's about today. The only thing recorded in the Bible said by Judas, the son of James. So he's one of the, one of the apostles. Only one thing we got him saying, this is what he said. What happened, Jesus, that we know you, but the rest of the world doesn't know you yet. How beautiful is that? What does that reveal about a man's heart? You never hear him speak, but at some point he's like, Jesus, you're telling us who you are. We're getting to know who you are, but how come the whole world doesn't know who you are? Jesus had the answer and and James Judas himself was gonna be a part of that answer. But the answer that Jesus gives him immediately goes like this. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and we will abide with him. God, I am grateful today in the truth that when it comes to entering your kingdom, we bring nothing to the table to enter. Undeserved, unearned, it is your grace. 
But I am also grateful that that grace continues to flow in our lives, that you call us to a place, uh, uh, an annual subscription of everything. Because you know that is when we are most free. That is when we experience your power to the greatest. That is when we see your hand at work. God, I pray today for those of us who need to wrestle with some questions that we want to know what it's like to to love you more. And so there are things that that because you love us, they, they need to be laid at your feet that we might experience such freedom and joy. God, will you remind us in this moment together, even as we sing this together, God, The place we stand, it is in your love. A love that is unending, a love that is unshakable, and a love that changes us and the world. I love you, God. I thank you for what you've taught us today. Help us to want to do something with this truth. In the name of Jesus, I pray it. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Let's stand.